We're going to go 1 through 11, but uh, we'll take it in sections. So let's go the first two verses here. If you have notes, you can track with us today. Um, Those are downloadable online if you're watching. It's great to have you. And um, you can follow with us us this morning. This letter is from Simon Peter, a slave and apostle of Jesus Christ. I am writing to you who share the same precious faith that we have. This faith was given to you because of the justice and the fairness of Jesus Christ, our God and Savior. Why does Peter, like Paul, like Jude in other epistles, call themselves a slave? You guys hear the wind? I don't know what that is. Seems like I fixed it. (laughs) And I'm in the groove. Why does he call himself a slave? Peter knew, like Bob Dylan, that everybody serves somebody. You might serve the devil, or you might serve the Lord, but you have to serve somebody. Peter says, in saying I'm a slave to Christ, what he's also saying is, I'm not a slave to the devil. I'm not a slave to sin. I'm not a slave to death. No, I'm a slave to righteousness that leads to life. He's saying the good shepherd is my master. The one who cares for me, died for me, redeemed me, fills me with his spirit. I'm a slave of Christ. And so they often refer to themselves as, I am a slave. You're you're owned by something somewhere, someone. He says, I'm owned by God. So um, with that in mind, he's an apostle. He's an ambassador. He's a representative of the kingdom of God to the people. And he's feeding the sheep. Which brings us to this. Number one, peace found in the plan. He says, you who share the same precious faith. He's writing to believers, those who share the same precious faith. People would place their faith in the gospel, the good news. He says, this faith was given to you. You know, there's, there's lots of faiths out there, thousands of faiths out there for you to respond to and, and to trust if you so choose. Most of these faiths consist of a self-reliance or a self-righteousness or a self-earning or a striving. Um, Islam, Judaism, Hinduism, be good enough, hopefully merit some of God's favor, hopefully earn a reward, maybe eternal life or reincarnation or a better form or... There are other faiths that attempt to deny the realities of truth and judgment and accountability and and, uh, to ignore the realities. Uh, Buddhism falls in that. Atheism falls in that. Uh, Faith in a worldview that um, ignores accountability for their actions, judgment that will take place, seeks to escape it. But God himself authored a faith a precious faith, a sure faith for us to respond to. It is a precious, that word precious, we should just spend a minute there, not to take it for granted or become disenfranchised, those of us who have placed our faith in the faith in Jesus Christ. Let us not forget the beauty and the power. Don't let it become old and stale, but remember the love and the sacrifice of, 
Remember who you were, where you were when you first heard the gospel. The thrill, the excitement, the relief, the joy, the peace of the Savior, the burden lifted, the payment paid in full, the sacrificial offering, the atonement of Christ. Don't forget, the Israelites, they forgot about God's love when they wandered in the wilderness. Their hearts became hardened. They weren't able to enter his rest, the promised land, because of their unbelief. It's a precious faith that's built upon the righteousness, the love, the justice, mercies, glory of God. From before this world existed, God had a plan. He intended to create humanity, male and female, with free will, knowing that they would initially rebel. However, he had also prepared within that plan and in advance a salvation. And throughout history, God promised and he prepared the peoples of the world to expect a savior, to expect a redeemer, one that would conquer sin and death. And at just the right time in history, according to the prophecies, through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, God extends to us a sure faith to believe in and to rest upon. Matthew eleven twenty eight through 30, Jesus comes and he says, Come unto me, all you who are weary and carry heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Have you done that? When he holds out his hand, have you taken that hand? When he says, give me your yoke of sin and death and that stress and take upon me my yoke. Because I am humble and gentle at heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy to bear and the burden that I give you is light. God has made available to us a precious faith, forgiveness of sins and eternal life. There is peace found in the plan. He has effectively, by means of his righteousness and justice and fairness, made a rescue boat available to us. Imagine a group of people swimming, floundering, in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean or the Pacific Ocean, and God drives up in his salvation boat. He's the maker of the boat, and he's the admiral of the boat. And he says, I love you, and I'm here to save you. And he puts his hand out over the boat. And sure, you can reject the boat. You can say that I don't need help. I'm a good swimmer. Self-righteousness or... Self-reliance. You can pretend that you're not in the middle of the ocean. I'm not in trouble. I'm okay. There's nothing to be worried about. Rejection, uh, denial. However, it's only in ceasing from self-reliance and self-righteousness and self-denial will a person, I should say self-reliance and self-righteousness, will a person be saved from drowning. And it's only by resting within the boat and relying upon the boat Will a person be saved, relying on the admiral? Hebrews 12, 2, it says that God is the author and the finisher of our faith, maker of the boat and the admiral. When you hear his voice, don't harden your heart, don't reject so great an invitation, but receive it with thanksgiving. 
And as Peter writes this letter, he is writing to people who have done so. The recipients of Peter's letter have done just that. They're not resting on their own merit, but they're resting on the merit and the love of God. It says, may God give you more and more grace and peace as you grow in your knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Jesus is the gate to grace and peace. You walk through the Jesus gate, and now you're in the land of Jesus. And it's filled with grace and peace. And the further you go into that land, the more grace and peace there is. I don't know how many of you have visited any of our national parks. Um, If we were going to Yellowstone today, we might see this sign. And we could, we could stop right there and jump out and take a picture of us with the sign. And, and there's a little bit of the uh, Yellowstone National Park in the background. We could send that Polaroid to our friends, or in modern day, we could put that on Facebook and, um, and call it a day. And that's good. And stay there for a day or two and then go back to our houses. And, um, or we could continue past the sign into the greatness and the glory and grandeur of the creation there. And so it is with God and with Jesus to know him, as we just sang this morning, to know him more, to wander into his glorious greatness, forsaking all else and to just go deeper. Psalm 34 says, taste and see that the Lord is good. Oh, the joys of those who take refuge in him. There is more goodness to be had. When a person has been born again, they haven't yet learned to walk or run or drive a car or see the sights. They're just laying in their crib, drooling, wetting themselves, staring at the ceiling. Now a lifetime of maturing should ensue. So how do we grow up in the faith? How do we grow? How do I get more grace and peace in my life? This verse tells us, we just read it, grow in the knowledge of God and Jesus our Lord. Grow. It doesn't say be a better person. Try a lot harder to be a better person. It says grow in the knowledge of God, of Jesus. That's how you grow in the faith. God will do that other work in us as we get to know him. Brothers and sisters, are you growing this morning? Is there more to be had in your relationship with God? A greater joy, a greater revelation, a greater wisdom, a greater strength. Yes, there is. God is challenging us to grow in knowledge of him because because life is littered with landmines and temptations and distractions and vanity cities and persecutions and materialism and disappointments. And alas, we could not save ourselves initially, and we would be incapable of maintaining our faith apart from God's steadfast love. We married up. God popped the question, and we had a choice to make. Struggle hopelessly or rest in him. And in marriage, we are, even in marriage, we are the flighty ones. And he's the solid rock. We get our strength from him. We can successfully grow in our faith, in our marriage with God, 
because of number two, provision is found in the promises. So many promises that are ours through Christ Jesus. I will never leave you nor forsake you. He's a good husband. Nothing, we can't, nothing that we can't endure without, with, with his help, that we can't go through or be victorious through. He's prepared a place for us in glory. There's so many promises, hundreds of promises. And so back to our main text at verse 3. By his divine power, God has given us everything we need for living a godly life. We've received all this by coming to know him, the one who called us to himself by means of his marvelous glory and excellence. And because of his glory and excellence, he has given us great and precious promises. These are the promises that enable you to share his divine nature and escape the world's corruption caused by human desires. You know, it's so easy to live ungodly. I don't, even, I don't need God's help to live ungodly. It's really easy for me. But to live a godly life, we can't do it apart from God. Not genuinely, not authentically, not in all purity, with all motives. Yet now there is provided for us a steady and unending supply of grace and peace when we tap into and as we continue to grow in the knowledge of God and Jesus. We married a rich man. He's rich. All his wealth becomes ours at the point of faith. He's a rich man. He gives us his own spirit and all the resources necessary to be victorious. All victory in Jesus, my Savior forever. He sought me and he bought me with his redeeming love. He loved me ere I knew him and all my love is due him. Some of you know it better than I do. <laughs> it wasn't in my notes, but it came to my head. So I started singing as much as I know. God loves to save people and he loves to change people's lives. You hear me say that almost every time I preach. He loves to redeem those who've blown it big time. He loves to restore those who have hurts, habits, and hang-ups. He loves to exalt those who the world has rejected, those who the world has given up on. He loves to confound the intellectuals with simple-minded people. The disciples were largely uneducated men but they astounded and confounded the religious leaders and the scholars of the day because they spoke with an authority and they performed mighty miracles by the power of the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 1, 26 through 31, Paul is writing to the Corinthian church. He says, remember, dear brothers and sisters, that few of you were wise in the world's eyes or powerful or wealthy when God called you. Instead, God chose things the world considers foolish in order to shame those who think they are wise. And he chose the things that are powerless to shame those who are powerful. God chose the things despised by the world, things counted as nothing at all. And he used them to bring to nothing what the world considers important. As a result, no one can ever boast in the presence of God. 
God has united you with Christ Jesus. For our benefit, God made him to be wisdom itself. Christ made us right with God. He made us pure and holy. He freed us from sin. Therefore, as the scriptures say, if you want to boast, boast only about the Lord. You know, not many were, it says not many were uh, wise in the world's eyes or powerful or wealthy when God called you. You know why? When you're wise in your own eyes and you're powerful and you're wealthy, hey, you don't need God. You're not listening for him. And you won't respond to him. It says not many will. Some will humble themselves. By this means of this marvelous glory and his excellence, God calls us to himself and then he proceeds to do miracles in each of our lives. Praise the Lord. Because Jesus is our Savior and has provided us with all we need, we can advance confidently in life by growing in the Lord and find that there is, number three, progress found in the process. So in view of that precious faith and in view of those precious promises, we are to surge ahead. We're to surge ahead, and that's what Peter says, starting in verse 5, he says, In view of all this, make every effort to respond to God's promises. Supplement your faith with a generous provision of moral excellence. Moral excellence with knowledge. Knowledge with self-control. Self-control with patient endurance. Patient endurance with godliness. Godliness with brotherly affection. And brotherly affection with love for everyone. Peter says, surge ahead and supplement your life and supplement your faith with all these things. He lists seven things there after faith. Bold actions, steps of faith, promises that are ready to be fulfilled and are activated by us simply opening our hands, walking into them. Our trust and obedience opens the door. These things are awesome. These things are for us. These things are in the national park, the kingdom of God. God says, come here, I have a whole bunch of stuff for you. It's good. Bring you great joy. Faith is a starting point. We've already kind of talked about that. It's a starting point. It gets us in the door. The next thing listed on that list is moral excellence, which the Greek word is virtue. Any positive attribute that is excellent and perfect you know, when we walk into, um, when we place our faith in Christ and Christ places his Holy Spirit in us, we become a remodel project. Remodel project. Now, I don't know if you guys have done that, but that involves a couple things. It, it, it involves destroying a lot of things, demolition, and building a lot of things, updating, improving. So those two things are happening in my life and in your life by the Holy Spirit. He's the contractor. And so look at this verse, 2 Corinthians 3.18, second half of the verse, it says, second half of the verse, and the Lord who is the Spirit makes us more and more like him as we are changed into his glorious image. So the Holy Spirit's there chipping away at us and, and taking out the kitchen putting in a new one. He's got a lot of work to do. 
Our language, Ephesians 4.29, let your words be, let no unwholesome talk come out of your mouth, but only that which is helpful for the building up of the church. Um, when we, some of us, when we come to know Christ, we have to stop stealing. And the Holy Spirit helps us do that. Uh, our work ethics, um, our marriage and parenting styles. There's a, he's like, I got a whole new style for you. In your marriage, a whole new perspective. And with child rearing, a whole new, it's a, it's a, it's a big gut job. It's a remodeled gut job. I keep repeating, um, you might be tired of it. It's a C.S. Lewis quote, and I just love it. The Christian does not think God will love us because we are good, but that God will make us good because he loves us. He's adding a lot of equity to your life. It's all about making us look and be like Jesus. Say, I am a remodel project. Yeah. I am a work in progress. Yeah. Some remodel projects take a long time. We'll never be quite there until we see Jesus face to face. We keep learning and growing in virtue. Let's look at another one. And to moral excellence, to virtue, add knowledge. A lot of Christians mistakenly disregard the intellect. And it's true that self-reliance is a trap, which we talked about. Many pride themselves in their intellect, but we're not saved because we know so much. Worldly wisdom can oftentimes be a snare, or it can twist or obscure the, obscure the truths of God. However, once we're saved, we are to yield our faculties to the Lord. Our mind is to be grown and sharpened and used for his glory. We're to research and strategize and innovate for the glory of God. And I know a lot of people have fallen trapped to the, the thought of, hey, Jesus is coming back any day now. Why do I waste time learning a trade or getting any type of education, um, honing a skill set? And yes, we should anticipate his coming, and I believe his return is getting closer and closer, of course. Uh, but it's foolish to sit on our hands, and it's a cop-out for being responsible and diligent. Don Fechner, who's a member of this church, he, he said, I remember my, when I just got married, I just moved to Mount Horeb, he said, Travis, um, learn all you can about all you can from anyone you can as long as you can. And I'm sure that's a quote elsewhere, but he, he told that to me, and I, haven't always, I have not done a good job of that all times, but I see the truth in that. Mark 12.30 says, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and all your strength. Mind with all your thinking faculty and the exercise thereof. Proverbs 4.7 says, wisdom is the principal thing. Therefore, get wisdom, and in all you're getting, get understanding. Let's talk just a little more about knowledge for too long in life, many of us rely on our natural charisma, our charm, our athleticism, our wittiness, instead of actually taking time to add knowledge. Too many of us are too proud to learn. Instead of learning from those around us, we act as if we already know it. We answer, I know, before hearing or learning or growing in ways that we could. Answering I know is a sure way to remain stupid. You cut off the instruction at level one 
before the speaker can even attempt to expound and or enlighten you or I with depth of understanding that we're unaware of. Even if we think we know, try, we should try saying, tell me more about this, or give me an example of what you are talking about. Many of us are so full of our own answers that no one can give us any wisdom. We assume we already know the point of what someone is about to say, and we miss the help that God has for us. I know that's true of me, but it's easier to see in other people. <laughs> I know with child rearing, there's been times when I, you know, God's taught us a few, we got a lot to learn, but there's a few things we've learned, and, and I know I can encourage and teach somebody in something, but before I have a chance to, they already know. And so we never get to that, they think they know where I'm going or what I'm going to talk about, and they don't. But the, the conversation is curbed and goes in a different direction. And, uh, and that's the same money management. Man, I thought I knew all there was about money after high school. I saw my dad sit at the kitchen table and he balanced a checkbook. I learned how to balance a checkbook. I know money. All right? I know all about money now. And I am so thankful. So many good resources out there and to educate ourselves on and grow in knowledge. Um, and for, for my wife and I, it was Financial Peace University was at least a doorway and, and helping us in many ways. You don't know what you don't know, right? Even if you think you know, <clears throat> people don't know what they don't know. That's the problem. And worse is that prideful people aren't open to hearing, so they don't, they're not open to hearing that they don't know something. So they remain ignorant, naive, stupid. Jesus said in Matthew 10, 16, look, I'm sending you out as sheep among wolves, so be shrewd as snakes and harmless as doves. Shrewd means intelligent, prudent, sensible, wise, and so forth. This is a good one for the people of God, that God wants to train our minds and he wants us to train our minds. And he has lots of wisdom for us and lots of knowledge for us in the kingdom of heaven. So, how might we grow in knowledge? What knowledge might God have for us to pursue? Verse 6, and to knowledge, here's the next one, self-control. We're just doing many studies, highlights on each of these attributes. Self-control, adding these to our life. Controlling and disciplining our drives and urges and impulses and reactions. Self-control is a fruit of the Spirit, listed in Galatians 5, 23. Instead of, I talked about this a few sermons back, instead of living by our feelings and our own understandings, we are supposed to live by the Spirit, by the Word, by the Spirit, and part of that is self-control. You guys ever heard of the snowball effect? That an initial decision or lack of a decision starts a snowball that gets bigger and bigger over time. And so that's true with money. If, if you're an impulse buyer, oh, you just set yourself back, which means you got to wait longer for this and, for, and to get that much money again. And, to, and it's just, just, or if you're someone that's managing money well, well, then that builds more and more compound interest over time. But that's with everything. That's with our anger management. Look at anger management here. Proverbs 29, 11. Fools vent their anger, but the wise... Quietly hold it back. Proverbs 19, 11, 
Sensible people control their temper. They earn the respect by overlooking wrongs. James 1, 19 through 20. Understand this, my dear brothers and sisters, you must all be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. For human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. So the 10-second rule can prevent that snowball from rolling downhill. The 10-second rule before disciplining a child or before responding to that coworker can save us a lot of trouble. Self-control. Self-control can include procrastination. We had a great example at our home. We typed up an entire two pages, um, a child and I, on the snowball effect. And we itemized how their decision, one little decision to procrastinate on school work for a day or to put it off till tomorrow, the snowball effect of the stress that that caused in their life, which in turn caused stress for mom, which, in, which brought dad into the picture, um, which involved a consequence to which they reacted negatively to the consequence and inherited a greater consequence. And then, um, and then we were late to something that we were to be to, and then there was another job that we were supposed to do that someone else had to do for us because we weren't able to do that job. And so this snowball just rippled through a family and got bigger and bigger and affected people outside of our family, which probably affected people outside of their family. Who knows? But self-control and the snowball effect, God has self-control for us. It's a beautiful thing that he has. It's a powerful, great gift that we can all grow in exponentially in the kingdom of God and through Jesus Christ as we grow and seek knowledge of Jesus, our Lord. Seek his help to be teachable and learn his rhythms and strategies. Learn to walk in the Spirit more. Galatians 5.25 says, Since we are living by the Spirit, let us follow the Spirit's leading in every part of our lives. The 10-second rule will help you do that. Next one, self-control. Add patient endurance. Patient endurance comes from our hope. When you read scripture, you'll often always find, um, usually within the same sentence, hope and patience. There's something that we hope for, so we wait patiently for it. We have patience because we hope for something. Often, look for that. We have a correct perspective on the future, the outcome, the rewards that God has promised, and so we're motivated to persevere, to hold on. Romans 8, 24 through 25 says, we are given this hope when we are saved. If we already have something, we don't need to hope for it. But if we look forward to something we don't yet have, we must wait patiently and confidently. Church, we have need of endurance, especially when suffering comes, when persecution comes, when people that we look up to drift or fall into moral failure. Or they drift from the faith. We need to continue to keep our eyes on Jesus Christ and to rest in his finished work. He's the faithful admiral. We don't jump out of the boat prematurely. We don't revert back to self-reliance or other false worldviews, religions. Hebrews 10, 
35 through 39, this is great. Paul is writing, or most people think Hebrews was written by Paul. Whoever it was says, so do not throw away this confident trust in the Lord. Remember the great reward it brings you. Patient endurance is what you need now so that you will continue to do God's will. Then you will receive all he has promised. For in just a little while, the coming one will come and not delay. And my righteous ones will live by faith. But I'll take no pleasure in anyone who turns away. But we are not like those who turn away from God to their own destruction. We are the faithful ones whose souls will be saved. Paul tells us, Peter tells us, Jesus tells us we need to grow in patient endurance. Are you growing in patient endurance? Or are you about to throw in the towel? Call it quits. Have you begun to coast without giving intentionality to your spiritual health and fervency? Paul wrote to Timothy, he said this, 2 Timothy 1, 5 through 6, he says, I remember your genuine faith, that precious faith. For you share the faith, he's talking about sharing the faith again. You share the faith that first filled your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice. And I know the same faith continues strong in you. That is why I remind you to fan into flames the spiritual gift God gave you when I laid my hands on you. It's like we're here for a reason. We need to fan the flame. We need to have patient endurance. We do that by fanning the flame, by remembering what God has done and what he's doing in our lives. We had a spiritual gifts class for three weeks. It was called Shapes, the Shape class. What gift or gifts has God given you? Continue to do them. Don't go dormant. Don't let atrophy set in. Fan into flames the giftings. We need endurance. All right. We're making our way through these. I encourage you guys, though, if one sticks out to you, to bring it before the Lord and say, yes, God, that's in your kingdom, and I want more of that. Yeah. Patient endurance, add to that godliness. What is godliness? Well, when, I think when we hear the word godliness now, we think of, oh, that, that means someone that's... Uh, um, does all the right things, or he's a godly person, he does, he's a very moral person. We actually already talked about moral excellence, that was virtue. Godliness is something other than. Godliness is, is not the actions, but the heart behind the actions. Godliness is focused on the heart. People can do all kinds of good actions because of pride or selfish gain or because I'm trying to sell you something, but the heart motives is what godliness is about. You see, the, the Pharisees had virtue, moral excellence, but it was a facade. It wasn't a true godliness. Jesus told us what true godliness was like. He actually painted a picture. He told a story about a, uh, in Luke 18, we can read it. Jesus, he told the story to some who had great confidence in their own righteousness and scorned everyone else, two men went to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee, the other one was a despised tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and he prayed this prayer. I thank you, God, that I am not like other people, cheaters, sinners, adulterers. I'm certainly not like that tax collector. I fast twice a week, I give you a tenth of my income, but the tax collector stood at a distance and he dared not even lift his eyes to heaven as he prayed. Instead, he beat his chest in sorrow, saying, Oh God, be merciful to me, for I am a sinner. 
I tell you, this sinner, not the Pharisee, returned home justified before God. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. They had the similar actions, right? They're both praying to God. The Pharisee probably had a better morality, you know, if you check the boxes. But reverence, respect, the one who seeks after God, who is honest with God, who wants to know God, not just to be seen in church, but wants to know God. That wants to please God. That wants to live for God. To grow in godliness, a devotion. To have a heart that feels what God feels. To desire what God desires. To esteem what God esteems. When we're truly godly, we receive favor from the Lord. Grace and peace. Look at Psalm 37, verse 23, it says, The Lord directs the step of the godly. He delights in every detail of their lives. He's so excited about the godly, those who are seeking him and wanting to live for him. Are you worried about what decisions to make in the future? Hey, just grow in godliness, and the Lord will direct your steps. That takes the pressure off. Don't need to worry about the specifics. Instead, we pay attention to growing in godliness. Do I hate sin like God hates sin? Do I prioritize what God deems important? Do I place value on people as God does? And so there is godliness. And maybe we can grow in that area. That attribute. Verse 7, we continue, and to godliness, brotherly affection. There's a Greek word used for brotherly affection. Does anybody know what it is? Yep, I heard it. That's it right there. The Greek word for brotherly affection is Philadelphia. Brotherly love. That's city of brotherly love. That's true. So, um, We need to add to godliness or to our life brotherly affection. It's a relational love, a committed love. It exists between members of the same family through thick or thin. So that means other believers. In this instance, we're talking about the family of God. Believers in Christ, wherever they are all over the world, especially locally, where you can actually see and talk to one another, Keep track of how often in the New Testament the writers um, call other believers brothers and sisters. It is hundreds of times. That's how they refer to one another. Brothers and sisters in the Lord. A distinct camaraderie, affection, a cherishing that should exist between all believers, closer than blood even. Jesus, at one time, he was preaching in a house and people came to him and his his uh, mother, and they said, uh, Jesus, your, your mom and brothers are trying to, to, to see you or get in. The crowds were so big, they couldn't even get near the house. They couldn't get near the house. And Jesus says, what did Jesus say right there? These people are my brothers and sisters. And so faith is deeper than blood. Your faith family. Deeper than blood. Um, Jesus tells us that our interactions and our love for one another is very special. And Ephesians 4, 
2 through 6, it says, Paul talking to Ephesus, he says, always be humble and gentle, be patient with each other, making allowance for each other's faults because of your love. Make every effort to keep yourself united in the spirit, binding yourself together with peace, for there is one body, one family, one spirit, just as you've been called one glorious hope for the future. There is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and father of all who is over all, in all, and living through all. So brotherly affection does not allow for rifts to remain unresolved. Arguments, preferences, personality differences do not divide us. We work together because we're called to the same ultimate mission. Galatians 6.10, he says, Therefore, whenever we have opportunity, we should do good to everyone, especially those in the family of faith. So why is, there a, why is there a distinction about brotherly love or love for believers? I mean, aren't we supposed to love everybody everywhere all the time? Why this distinction? Because after brotherly love, then it says, and brotherly love, and then to, the, to that add love for everyone. So there's two separate deals going on. Brotherly affection, why? Why prioritize that? We're told to in Scripture. In this verse here that we just read, Therefore, whenever we have opportunity, we should do good to everyone, right? The whole wide world. And especially, why does it say that? Especially to those who are in the family of faith. Why? We are to have a preeminent love, a prioritized love for one another because relational capacities only go so far. You can't have a thousand close friends, right? No, we're limited on our ability, relationally, resource-wise. We want to give to everybody everywhere. Resources only go so far. So you start with the body of Christ, the believers, those that have the same spirit, the same mission. And why do that? Why not prioritize? Why not prioritize the outside world or unbelievers, right? Because they're not going to heaven yet or they don't know the love of God yet, right? No. Jesus said this in John 13, 35. He said, your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. So when the world sees the kind of love, the intentionality and the commitment and that type of love, the unconditional love, an agape love, an unending love between us, they will want that. And that will add credibility to the message and the love that we show to them. It gives credibility to the message. So there is a prioritized love and a different kind of love because we share the same mission. We have the same worldview. We have the same savior. We have the same spirit inside of us. We have the same value system. So there's a lot that bonds us, a lot we're responsible for. Love your neighbor. Oh, so finally the last one. And then love for everyone. Love for everyone. And Jesus made that clear. He said, love your neighbor as yourself. There was a scholar that challenged that at one point. He says, oh, who is my neighbor? Jesus gave a parable of the good Samaritan, someone that was outside of the culture and was looked down upon, and yet this good Samaritan helped this Jewish person um, who was beat up on the side of the road when others of his own people had passed him by. Indeed, God loves us while we were yet his enemies. He says, love your enemies. Don't just love your neighbor. If you're trying to find a way outside of the box, it says, love your enemies. Love those who persecute you. Um, 
And so we care about the lost and we are intentional in our efforts to share the truth of Christ. So we have a precious faith, a precious Savior, precious promises. And we can grow in all of these things. And Peter is saying, so do it. So grow in these things. And number four, place your place found in paradise. Verse eight says, the more you grow like this, the more you grow in your knowledge of God and Jesus, the more productive and useful you will be in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But those who fail to develop in this way, they're short-sighted and blind, forgetting that they've even been cleansed of their old sins. So dear brothers and sisters, work hard to prove that you are really among God's, among those God has called and chosen. Do these things and you will never fall away. Then God will give you a grand entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's cool that it says productive there. Um, not barren, not unfruitful, but rather purposeful. Who, who wants to live a barren, unfruitful life, a life without purpose and meaning? No. We can live purposeful and meaningful. What we do has significance because I'm part of God's plan, and he's using me to spread his love and build his kingdom. Yeah. You can wake up with that on your mind in the morning. I am part of God's plan. He's using me to spread his love and build his kingdom. I can go on the bathroom mirror. Living fruitful lives. <clears throat> Verse 9 says, But those who fail to develop in this way are short-sighted or blind, forgetting that they have been cleansed from their old sins. When you fail to grow in God, you don't stay the same. You begin to slide. There's a third day song that says, uh, I think the name of it says, It's a Slow Fade. That's how the song goes. It's a slow fade. When we fail to walk by the Spirit, we're inevitably walking by the flesh, our carnal nature. Our carnal nature will inevitably take us away from the things of God. We'll miss opportunities and blessings that avail themselves each day. We'll open up ourselves to a great deal of unnecessary harm and danger, deceptions. If we go give no thought and intentionality to our marriage with God, our relationship with God will drift from him. He will certainly pursue us in his love. He'll certainly warn us of deception, of the realities of unbelief, but God does not force us to believe. He doesn't force a person to remain in relationship. So we continue to resist God's reproof so far as to fall away. Forsake the faith, reject the precious faith. John 15, 4 says, Remain in me, Jesus said. Remain in me and I will remain in you. For a branch cannot produce fruit if it's severed from the vine. And you cannot be fruitful unless you remain in me. Yes, I am the vine and you are the branches. And those who remain in me and I in them will produce much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. Anyone who does not remain in me is thrown away like a useless branch that withers. Such branches are gathered into piles, into a pile to be burned. But if you remain in me and my words remain in you, you may ask for anything you want and it will be granted. 
When you produce much fruit, you are my true disciples. This brings great glory to my Father. I have loved you even as the Father has loved me. Remain in my love. And when you obey my commandments, you remain in my love, just as I obey my Father's commandments and remain in his love. I have told you these things so that you will be filled with joy. Yes, your joy will overflow. So the good admiral saves us, sticks his hand over the boat, pulls us in. He has all the resources for us. He's assured us victory. He says, hey, here's part of my kingdom. Look in here and grow in all of these things. Or as you seek me, seek to learn and seek to grow in these things because this is what I have for you. And I'm going to be maturing you and growing you and remodeling you. And and, and you're going to bear fruit. You're going to see that your life has meaning and purpose and significance. And you won't be barren. And you won't, be, you won't fall away. And you won't jump overboard. If you're growing in these things and you're believing who I am and you're just drawing close to me and resting in me, you're not going to turn back to self-reliance. You're not going to jump overboard. And he says in verse, uh, he says that and God will grant you a grand entrance provided, grand entrance provided into the eternal kingdom. You think the faith was amazing, that the promises were amazing. Matthew 25, 21, his Lord said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. In 1 Corinthians 2, 9, this is what the scriptures mean when they say, No eye has seen and no ear has heard and no mind has imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. God is a lover and a rewarder and he's excited to usher believers into heaven. As we wrap up, um, if we were to jump actually to the end of Peter's letter, the third chapter, you would see him again. Challenges readers, one of the last verses in the letter 2 Peter 3.18, he says, Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So looking back over your notes this morning, uh, what things is God pressing upon your heart? Uh, Which of his promises? um, What attributes to grow in? And how might you respond in the days and weeks ahead? Father God, we thank you for this morning. Thank you for Peter, Lord, caring about the sheep. Lord, caring about them greatly, wanting them to grow, wanting them to see you for who you are, understand your character, uh, recognize your promises, uh, grow, Lord, in their faith, in their fruitfulness, in their hope, in their joy, and uh, and warning them, Lord, and telling that those people that do not, that do not, um, look to Christ, who do not grow in their faith, Lord. They're, they're likely, Lord, to be unprofitable, uh, likely to fall away, Lord. And of course, we're not of those, Lord. We're of those who draw near to you. Our trust is in you, Lord. We thank you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.